Let me encourage you to open your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of Matthew, where we have been studying in recent days and tonight to chapter 13, where we will read together the first 23 verses. So Matthew 13, 1 through 23. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful." And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So, Father, may we be among those tonight who hear the word and who understand it and who bear fruit. Help us. Help me as I open your word to us. Now I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do you speak to them in parables? That's the question of Jesus' disciples to their master teacher here in verse 10. Why do you speak to them in parables? Why, Jesus, 
this particular teaching method in which you present spiritual realities robed in the garb of what are usually very earthy illustrations. Why all the word pictures and anecdotes, Jesus? Why are you preaching the kingdom, for instance, by painting this portrait here to these people on the beach of a sower and seeds and soils? Why do you speak to them in parables? And it's a good question. Why did Jesus speak in parables on this occasion? Why did Jesus so often present kingdom truths by likening them to farming and fishing and family life and so on? Why did Jesus speak to people in parables? Well, quite often Christians have explained, rightly I think, that Jesus taught in parables, that Jesus often related spiritual truth by means of illustrations and anecdotes for the purpose of illumination for the purpose of helping people better understand the spiritual realities about which he spoke. And so, for instance, Jesus spoke in Luke 15 about a man searching for his lost sheep and about a woman scouring the house for her lost coin. And he did that, I think, in order to help people better understand God's pursuit of lost people. Wouldn't you agree? His listeners would relate to these portraits of the shepherd and his sheep, of the housewife and her coin, and therefore they would better understand what Jesus wanted them to know about God, who searches for people. And so it's often pointed out that Jesus taught in parables for this reason, for the purpose of helping people better understand spiritual truth, for the purpose of illuminating spiritual concepts. And as I say, I believe that's correct. And I believe that's probably the main reason why we so often find Jesus speaking in parables, for the purpose of illumination, in order to help people understand. But it's striking to note tonight that when the disciples asked Jesus here in Matthew 13, why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you addressing these crowds gathered here on the beach in verse 2? Why are you teaching them in parables? It's striking to note that when the disciples ask this, Jesus does not say what I just said. Jesus does not say what we might have expected him to say, or at least what we might have said if they'd asked us, why does Jesus teach in parables? Jesus does not say here in verses 11 and following that these parables that he's been giving are for the purpose of illumination, but rather he says that they're for the purpose of concealment. Concealment. Did you notice that? Why do you speak to them in parables, verse 10? Because, verse 11, while spiritual understanding has been granted to you, it has not been granted to these people to whom I've been speaking. And because, verse 12, while spiritual understanding will increase for you who have already begun to receive that understanding, yet for those who don't have it, for those, verse 13, who see without seeing and hear without hearing, even what they have, verse 12, they will lose. That's why I speak to them in parables. Because it's not been granted to them to see what you see and to understand what you Understand. Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6. 
there in verses 14 and 15 to show us that this lack of understanding among the people in verses 1 and 2 that he's preaching to, this lack of understanding is a fulfillment of prophecy. And it will help us to understand this quotation from Isaiah and what Jesus means here if we just turn over for a minute to the Gospel of Mark, where Mark gives us an abridged version of Jesus' answer to the parable's question. Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. This is Mark covering the same events that we read about in Matthew. And we read as follows in verses 10, 11, and 12. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And did you notice the words, so that? There at the beginning of verse 12. Those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing they may see and not perceive and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. So that they won't come to understand. I speak to them in this way. So it's clear, isn't it? While it's true that Jesus' use of parables can be incredibly illuminating for those whom God grants ears to hear, yet the point of this passage is that for some people, for those who are outside, the purpose of the parables is quite the opposite. Those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing they may not see, while seeing they may see and not perceive. And so on. The parables are used of God in many cases for our illumination. But Jesus is saying here in this case, they are used of God for the purpose of concealment. How so? How can hearing the truth in parable form actually keep some people from understanding? Well, Jesus doesn't say, does he? And so I'm not positive that what I'm about to suggest is exactly what he's getting at here. But try and imagine for a moment or two that you'd never heard this parable before, uh, this parable that's open on your lap tonight in Matthew 13. Imagine you're hearing it for the first time this evening, this anecdote about the sower and the seeds and the soils. And imagine that you are not privy to the explanation that Jesus gives beginning in verse 18, as to what the parable actually means. And imagine, too, that you don't have the years under your belt, which many of you actually do have, of familiarization with the message and teaching of Jesus in the Gospels in general. And then also, imagine you don't have the illuminating help of the Holy Spirit, which God is so often giving us when we open His Word. Imagine you just hear Matthew 13 3 through 9 tonight, like these people heard it here without any of these helps. It's incredibly difficult for us to imagine uh, that, I think, for many of us, because we do have the help of the Holy Spirit when we open our Bibles, uh, even if we don't always remember that he's helping us. 
And because by the Spirit's help, we are, many of us, familiar with Jesus' teachings in general. And because we have, many of us, heard this specific parable and Jesus' explanation of it time after time after time. Indeed, we are perhaps so accustomed to these advantages that we have that we may not even realize how much help we really have when we open the Bible to a passage like this one. And thus we might think to ourselves tonight, well, how hard could it be to understand a parable? I've been doing this most of my life. I think I could probably understand Jesus' meaning here even without verses 18 through 23. And if you could, it's because you've been doing this most of your life. But if you hadn't, could you understand what Jesus meant just by reading verses 3 through 9? I suggest that you might not be able to. And I might not either. I suggest to you that this parable makes sense to many of us because we do have the help of the Holy Spirit and because we have had the help of the Spirit, many of us, in such a way that we are familiar with Jesus' teaching in general so that some parables we do actually understand even though Jesus doesn't decode them for us. And I suggest to you that this makes sense to us tonight because Jesus mercifully did decode this one and Matthew recorded his explanation for us. But again, what if we had none of that? What if we were encountering encountering this parable for the first time tonight and without verses 18 through 23 and without the current or prior help of the Holy Spirit or all the reading that we've done in the Gospels? I suggest to you that we might find ourselves saying, sower, seeds, soil, I thought you were a preacher. What are you talking about, Jesus? Do you know what he's talking about? I wish he would just explain it to us in plain English, right? Indeed, even Jesus' disciples were told over in Luke 8 had to come and ask Jesus to explain what this was all about. All of which is to say that parables, word pictures, anecdotes can be quite opaque without the helps to which most of us are so accustomed. And that is perhaps why Jesus used them with people from whom true understanding was to be concealed. In the opaqueness of a parable proclaimed without the needed helps, these people would, by God's design, keep on hearing but would not understand. They would keep on seeing but would not perceive. Now the apostles, on the other hand, were given these helps. By the Spirit's ministry of illumination and by their own growing familiarity with Jesus and by means of the explanations that Jesus gave, like the one he gives here in verses 18 through 23, the apostles were being granted, verse 16, to hear and to see. And indeed, they were seeing and hearing things, verse 17, that even the godly of prior generations had wished they could have seen. Now, those godly men of old couldn't see what the apostles saw simply because they lived in the time before Christ came. But many people in Jesus' own day couldn't see because in the purpose of God, it had not been granted them to see. And Jesus used parables, we're told here, as part of that purpose. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted which forces us to reckon with the sovereignty of God. 
These middle verses tonight, verses 10 through 17, force us to reckon with God's sovereignty. These verses remind us that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and that he will have compassion on whom he has compassion, and that he can also harden, or in this case, conceal truth from whomever he wills. He is God, after all. And he's not beholden to us. We don't deserve or have the right to an understanding of his word. It's granted as a gift, and the gift is for whomever the giver chooses. So this passage reminds us that God is, in fact, God, that he's sovereign over who is to grasp hold of his truth, not to the exclusion of human responsibility, as we will see in a moment, but there's no getting around these words here in verse 11, to you it has been granted, but to them it has not been granted. And there's no getting around the purpose of the parables in this equation, Mark 4. Those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And so we must let God be God. We must accept that he's sovereign over the salvation of individuals, over people coming to the knowledge of the truth. And we must give him the praise tonight, give him the praise, if we are among those who can make sense of this parable. If we are among those who have had the help of the Holy Spirit, and who do have the explanation in verses 18 and following, and who do understand something of the things of God. We must give God the praise for that, because as with the apostles, to us it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To us it has been granted, and praise God that it has. Praise God for the work of the Spirit In opening many of our eyes, praise God that Jesus' decoding of this parable was recorded and left for us to find. So this passage causes us to reckon with the sovereignty of God, and we must let God be God. We must accept his sovereignty over the salvation of individuals and over people's coming to the knowledge of the truth. And yet, we must also notice in our parable tonight a reminder as well of the responsibility of man in the reception of the truth. Because while Jesus says that he teaches parables as a concealment technique toward those to whom understanding has not been granted, while Jesus does teach in parables, at least here and perhaps on other occasions as well, as a concealment technique, yet the actual parable that he tells here indicates that the reason many people do not rightly receive the word of God is because of the state of their own hearts. Rocky ground hearts, thorn-infested hearts, which is a lesson in man's responsibility, right? A significant purpose of the parable, it seems to me, is to alert us to the state of our own hearts and to the state of hearts around us as well. I think that's perhaps why Matthew and Mark and Luke as well give us Jesus' explanation of the parable. Because the purpose now is no longer to be opaque. The purpose of this parable now is to shed light, like we normally think of the parables doing, on an important spiritual subject. Namely, the state of the human heart in terms of its receptivity to the word of God. Jesus gave the parable without an explanation to the people on the beach in the first part of this chapter so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. But he decoded the parable for the disciples so that they would see 
and so that they would perceive. And I think that perhaps he ordained that decoding to be recorded in the Bible because the ongoing purpose of this parable is no longer to conceal, but to reveal, to help us see, to help us perceive, to help people better understand and consider something about their hearts and their heart's receptiveness to the Word of God. And the consideration of your heart and your heart's receptiveness to the Word of God is a human responsibility issue, isn't it? So which is it? Is God sovereign over salvation? Or is man responsible? Both. Both. How can it be both? How can God be sovereign over who understands and believes his word and yet man be responsible for the state of his own heart? I don't think the Bible fully explains the answer, but it surely teaches that both are true. And we need to see both in this text tonight, and we need to accept both. And we turn our attention now in this parable that Jesus told to the responsibility of man, to the effect that the state of our hearts has on our reception of God's word. And we have it now in this parable of four soils. Four soils. Now, comparing verses 3 through 9 with the decoding in verses 18 through 23, we see that the four different types of soils represent four different types of human hearts on which the seeds can fall. The seed is sown, verse 19, in his heart. And so the four soils represent four kinds of hearts. And then the seeds that are sown on those soils represent the word of God. The word of the kingdom, verse 19. The word, verse 20. The word, verse 22. The word, verse 23. And so the soils are human hearts and the seeds are God's word sown on those hearts. And in the sower is someone scattering God's word like seed on human hearts. And this sower goes out with his Home Depot bucket loaded with seed, if this was today, or, or his uh, spreader, you know, walk behind spreader, or however we would do it. And he scatters the seed here and there, some of it ending up on the roadside, some of it landing in rocky places, some of it falling among the thorns, and then some of it dropping into good, rich Soil And the four types of soil here, it's no surprise, produce varying agricultural results. So first you have the seeds that fell beside the road in verse 4. And the birds came and ate them up. It's a portrait of ground, I think, that is too firm for the seeds actually to find a lodging place. It's ground that's been walked upon along the roadside. And so the, heat, the seed hits that ground and it just lays there right on the surface. And this, says Jesus in verse 19, is a picture of the person who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. There are some people whose hearts, like the ground along the side of the road, the word just won't sink in. The seed just won't sink in. And with the seed never having really penetrated a heart like that, and with the seed therefore still lying loose on the surface, the devil comes like a bird and plucks the seed up in his beak and flies away with it so that it is forgotten. 
This is what happens, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of God and does not understand it. The devil snatches the word and it's gone from their memory. And while we saw that it is God who is ultimately sovereign over the sinking in of his word, verse 11, yet since it is so clear with the next two portions of the soil that the man bears responsibility for the state of his heart, that I think is what must be in view here as well. Why are some hearts like the ground, the hard ground along the edge of the road, into which the seed cannot sink? I think the point of the parable at this juncture is that such hearts are hardened against the word. I don't think Jesus is speaking here about people like his disciples who didn't at first understand the parable, but whose hearts weren't hard, who, who didn't understand at first, but who wanted to understand, as we learn in Luke 8, and who came and asked Jesus to help them understand. He's talking about people who, for whatever reason, don't understand the word because their hearts and minds are closed. Maybe they're just distracted. And they would rather be thinking about other things than on what's being preached. Maybe like the Pharisee, they've already decided against Jesus. Maybe they're too proud to listen to Christian preaching, which tells us that we're not good and that we need a Savior. There can be any number of reasons, but I think the idea in verses 4 and 19 is that some people's hearts are closed against the Word. Some hearts won't make an opening for the Word, and so it bounces off their hearts and rattles around and lays there, like seed falling on a hard roadside and then the devil comes and scoops it away lest it lie there until a crevice is opened up. And I say to you, beware of this. Beware of having a heart like this. Beware of having a heart like this in general, of being a person who just in general does not accept the word of God. That's Jesus' point here. He's talking about someone whose heart just in general is hard against God's word, who would rather be doing something else and thinking about something else or believing something else or hoping in something else besides the word of God. Beware of having a heart that rejects God's word. And ask yourself if this is you. Am I the kind of person who it's not just that sometimes I don't listen like I should, but my heart in general rejects God's word. That's who Jesus is talking about. Is that you? Do I even remember what we talked about in these services on Thursday mornings week by week? Or might it be that my heart is hardened? And even if your heart is not hardened against the word in general, and that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking here He's specifically referring here to people who just won't listen to the word in general. But even if that's not you, yet beware that your heart is not hard concerning certain truths of the word or at different times in your life. This isn't what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about people whose hearts are generally open but who have some hard places in them. He's speaking here rather about lost people whose hearts don't take the word in at all. But there is an application for those of us who are Christians that we can make for ourselves, it seems to me, because some of us, even though our hearts are not on the whole like the side of the road here in Matthew 13, yet some of us may have closed our hearts against certain truths of the Bible because for whatever reason... It really doesn't fit what we want to do or be or believe. So it doesn't fit 
what I want for me to think very seriously about Matthew chapter X or Exodus chapter Y or 1 John chapter Z. Or, or perhaps some of us go through seasons where we close ourselves off to the Bible and basically stop listening to it for a while so that we can't remember what was read or what was preached because it never really sank in and the devil carried it away. Beware of that happening even on a short-term level in your life. Beware of a heart that is irresponsive to the Word or even to certain truths of the Word, like the shoulder of a dirt road is unable to receive seed. And then beware in the second place of having a heart that's like the rocky soil, spoken of in verses 5 and 6. Here's a person, as we're told in verse 20 and 21, who hears God's word and who receives it with gladness, but he's shallow. She's shallow, like soil that is filled up with too many rocks. You try to plant something in rocky soil, there's a little bit of soil, and the seed can begin to cling to it, but there's not enough soil to last and provide significant or sufficient moisture and nurture when August comes. And there are people like this. Christianity seems exciting to them when they first hear about it. They start coming to church. Maybe they join a Bible study. They talk about what they're learning and all seems well. But then maybe their newfound interest in religion isn't smiled upon by their friends. Or maybe they realize that holding to biblical positions on certain moral issues isn't going to make them very popular at work might even cost them a promotion or a friendship. And now their interest in Christianity begins to fade rather rapidly when the heat is turned up, just like a corn stalk planted in too shallow soil. And so here's a reminder that Christianity is not just a springtime faith, that we should not sign up to follow Jesus thinking that things will always be comfortable and bright like a 70-degree day in April. Christianity has its Augusts as well. And if you're not okay with that, if you want Christianity to be easy, then don't be surprised if the stalk of your life dries up when the sun comes out, when the going gets tough. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And then what about the thorny ground in verses 7 and 22? Others fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked them out. Verse 22, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Does that describe you? I think this is much more of an American sort of soil than the rocky ground. The sun of persecution doesn't get nearly as hot here in America as it does in some other places. But the thorns are everywhere here. 
The worry of the world, verse 22, the attention and the time and the anxiety that we give to all the stuff that we have going, to all the plates that we have spinning, to all the things that we own and the care that we must take for them, all the directions in which we allow ourselves to be pulled, all the stuff on our schedules, all our desires for self-actualization and self-fulfillment, all these things are like growing a garden full of dandelions. And if you're growing a garden full of dandelions, don't expect the tomato seeds that you set out there to do very much in all that weed-infested soil. And many is a would-be Christian. Many is a person who seems to take some interest in spiritual things and to seem to want to follow Christ, but whose life is like that bed of dandelions in which there's just not much room for the things of God to truly ever get going. They want to follow Christ in some ways, but they really want their life more. And so in the end, they don't really want to follow Christ, and they don't end up following him. And the deceitfulness of wealth, says Jesus, can have the same effect. An obsessive desire for wealth or a coddling of and reliance upon the wealth that you do have can take up so much room in a person's heart that, again, there's just not much room for the word. And though Jesus is speaking here, as with each of these first three types of soil, though Jesus is speaking here about people whose faulty reception of the word proves them to be unbelievers, though he's speaking here of someone who doesn't bear any fruit and so proves never to have been a Christian to begin with, beware, too, of being a believer who, in some measure, allows the word to be partially choked out in your life by the worry of the world or by the deceitfulness of wealth. Again, this is not Jesus' point here. He's warning against proving finally to be an unbeliever. But there's an application, again, that I think can be made even for believers. And that is that even as true Christians, we're in great danger in a culture like this one where we are so rich in material blessings and where we are so busy so much of the time. We're in great danger of waking up one day, even as Christians, and realizing that it's been months, perhaps, since we had any real meaningful interaction with God's Word. We're in danger of waking up one morning and realizing either that we haven't been in the Bible very much or that we haven't really been doing anything much about what it says, but rather just going through the motions of daily devotional and church attendance, not because we rejected the truth of the Bible, Not because we weren't Christians, but because even as Christians, we can get caught up in so many other things. That's one reason why a well-spent Lord's Day can be such a blessing. It's one day on which the worry of the world can be set aside without any pinge of regret that maybe you're not doing as much as you should be. You can set things aside and you can say, I have time today to let the word of God really sink in with very little or no encroachments from the thorns so that the word can take true and solid root in my heart again this week. But it's also a Monday through Saturday thing as well, isn't it? We mustn't allow the cares and riches of this life to edge the Bible out of our lives, either in terms of its intake or in terms of its application. 
So there are three types of bad soil here, three types of hearts that for different reasons do not allow the word of God to produce fruit in a person's life. And though there are applications to be made to believers here, yet in the parable itself, all three of these soils are descriptions of unbelievers, of people who are not true Christians. Some of them appear to be for a season, but eventually the lack of fruit proves otherwise. But then there is the good soil in verses 8 and 23. Then there is the heart of the man, the woman, the boy, the girl that receives the word of God and does produce fruit. This soil is not hard against the word. This soil is not shallow so that the word cannot take solid root. This soil is not infested with thorns that will render the word unfruitful. It's good soil and it produces good fruit. And the implication, of course, is that this is what you want your heart to be like. The one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. This is what you want your heart to be like as opposed to the other three soils. You don't want your heart to be closed against the word. You don't want to be interested in Christianity so long as it's easy. You don't want to be so tangled up in the stuff of this life that there's really just not room for the Word of God to produce any fruit. Rather, you want to ask God that your heart would be tilled, watered, softened, weeded soil with the rocks of a shallow desire from ease plucked up and placed off to the side somewhere. And when your heart is like that, the word falling into it will do its work, bringing forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. That's not to say that there will never be hard places or rocks or thorns in the life of a believer, but this fourth soil is a description of a heart that is, on the whole, hospitable to the word of God. And this is the heart of the true Christian. This is the heart of the person who has been saved by God. A heart that is hospitable to his word. A heart that is good soil for his word. A heart out of which soil grows good fruit. And don't you want your heart to be that way? Don't you want to be good soil for the word of God? Ask God to make it so. Ask God to till and to water and to weed and to clear out the soil of your heart. You take responsibility, of course, for the state of your heart as it is and for whatever soil work God gives you to do. You take responsibility for asking God's help, but do ask Him. Ask God to help you. Ask God to come into the field of your heart and to do His work tilling the soil and making it good ground. Because remember that it's God, verse 11, who grants that we know his word. It's God who grants that the soil be good, in other words. No one is born with a heart like this. No one is born Christian. No one is born into this world with a good soil heart. And no one, by all of his efforts, can sufficiently clear the ground and make the soil good. God has to grant you 
such a heart. It is the heart of a Christian, but God is the one who makes you a Christian and gives you this heart that receives His Word. And I urge you to call out to Him, asking that He would. Ask God to make you a Matthew 13, 23 person. The one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the Word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some 30.